welcome to the Global Security and Protection Group podcast. This is your host, Ron Jacobus. We hope you enjoy these conversations on executive protection and security management as we meet with security practitioners and industry thought leaders. Welcome, everyone, to episode number 10 of the Global Security and Protection Group podcast. This is your host, Ron Jacobus, and today I am joined by our guest, Perry Carpenter, a certified chief information security officer, deceptionologist, security behavior alchemist, creator and host of the Eighth Layer Insights podcast, and author of two books, Transformational Security Awareness, What Neuroscientists, Storytellers, and Marketers Can Teach Us About Driving Secure Behaviors, and most recently, The Security Culture Playbook, an executive guide to reducing risk and developing your human defense layer. Perry has been a recognized thought leader on security awareness and the human factors of security for well over a decade. He began his information security journey as a programmer slash analyst with J.B. Hunt Transportation in Lowell, Arkansas. His broad background makes him uniquely positioned to understand the nuances of security awareness strategy. Perry currently serves as Chief Evangelist and Strategy Officer for Know Before, the world's most popular security awareness and simulated phishing platform. Before joining Know Before, Perry led security awareness and security culture management, anti-phishing behavior research, and other areas of identity access management strategy at Gartner Research. With a long career as a security professional and researcher, Carpenter has developed a broad experience throughout North America and Europe, providing security consulting and advisory services for many of the world's best-known brands. Perry holds a Master of Science in Information Assurance from Norwich University in Vermont and is credentialed as a Certified Chief Information Security Officer. He has previously served on the Arkansas Chapter's InfraGuard Board and currently serves as a board member of the National Cybersecurity Alliance. In addition to his day job, Perry finds time to share his knowledge as a contributor with Forbes Business Council and as an opinion columnist with CEO World Magazine. Perry, I got to say it's a pleasure to have you on the program with us today. I'm looking forward to a a really thought-provoking discussion on security awareness, information security, and your bread and butter, security culture. Yeah, thank you for having me. And that was a Quite a bio, so thank you for trudging through all that backstory and, and and getting it out there. So it's uh it's fun to hear. Absolutely, Perry. I mean, you've done so much. Uh, you've impacted so many people and so many companies. Um, and I'm really happy to have you on with us today to talk about cybersecurity, information security, and security culture as a whole. And uh, as you know, I like to kickstart our episodes by highlighting our guest's journey into their professional careers. And uh, I'd like to give you that opportunity just now to talk about how you found yourself in this security niche, uh, perhaps how a bachelor's degree in philosophy, biblical studies, and languages snowballed into attending law school before ultimately diverting over to complete a master's of science and information assurance um, before eventually embarking into information security, cybersecurity, and the security culture world of today. Yeah, so... um... I was one of those kids that always tinkered with computers growing up and and loved them. For some reason, I I didn't see it as a career path. I um, went into college not really with a plan. Um, I started off going after a music degree because I did a lot of uh, composition, played in a lot of bands, played a few instruments growing up, um, and enjoyed that part of it. Um, but then as I was taking some of the classes in year one, it uh, the way that I was learning 
didn't really give me joy. And so I kind of said, well, if I want music to be fun, I need to go kind of leave that as something I'm not pursuing academically. Um, but I did meet a lot of people that were studying philosophy and people who were studying doing the biblical studies program. I liked them a lot. Um and decided to pursue that. Um, really loved, um, and it seems to be very common with people who like music and composition. They also usually have some kind of affinity for languages or um, logical patterns or something like that. So the uh, the logic and the symbolic logic in philosophy was really interesting. The language studies and biblical languages was interesting because you could turn on the history channel and go, oh, I you know recognize those characters. Um, I can kind of make out what's what's there. So it was kind of like the uh, the puzzle solving piece of it, I thought was really cool. Um, but in the same way that I started college without a plan, I kind of finished college without a plan. Um, and I was at the end of having those two degrees, and I thought, what am I going to do next? Um, I really considered going into linguistics because I did like languages so much. And I talked to a professor about that, and he said, good idea, but you're going to have to wait for somebody to die to get a job because it's not really sought after. And then so I thought, well, what do I do now? And uh I kind of landed on, I'll go to law school. That sounds like fun. Um, that's what you do when you have other degrees and you don't know what to do. Um, did law school for about two years, and it was kind of like music. It was like, okay, this is interesting, but everybody that I see doing this as a career doesn't really enjoy it. Um, so I did not finish that degree. I did two out of three years and then exited and said, you know what, I could go into uh, computer science. So I started a master's degree in computer science and then got hired out of that um, doing research and development for J.B. Hunt in their technology area. And they ultimately said, don't finish your degree. We'll pay you what you would get if you had it anyway, and you can just do on-the-job training for everything that you need. Um, so that worked out. Uh, I was happy with that. Ended up uh, doing a lot of really fun things there because this is pre-Y2K. And uh, there was a really small core team of people that were writing systems that let um, the trucks that we had know the most efficient route for the fuel that they had, where they should fuel, um, and so on. Um, also wrote a satellite email program. This is, again, pre-Y2K. Um, that let the truck drivers send and receive email and their little onboard computers. And uh, that was a lot of fun. Um, and a few other things, and then ended up getting, getting hired away from J.B. Hunt by Walmart, um, which is up in northwest Arkansas, where J.B. Hunt is. And I uh, was hired there to write the email system that would be used in all the stores and clubs. So I got hired uh, day one at that job, got pulled out of line to go work on a special project, which was samsclub.com. Um, this is, again, right around, uh, this is like 2001, I guess. Um, and Sam's Club was trying to figure out how to compete with this new upstart called Amazon. And uh, that was a, a huge, uh, grueling and fun project where they took all the developers that they could get their hands on that had any web experience or other backend experience that was going to be relevant to that, threw them in a big metal building warehouse. And there were like, you know, network drops falling from the ceiling and everybody was plugged in on big lunch tables and just working like crazy. And they were catering food in every day. Um, not the best food, but it was food. Um, and uh, just doing everything they could to keep people there and with energy. And uh, we ended up launching that. And then I went back over to the regular uh, core part of uh, the development staff um, at Walmart in the email department, wrote the email system that they hired me to write, 
And then that was my gateway into security because when you're doing email systems, you also end up getting into groups. Um, you know, how do I deal with email groups um, and permission sets and calendaring and um, LDAP systems? Um, ended up doing a lot of the the work with Active Directory right when that first rolled out, and that was another entry into secure the world of security. Um, and so that was really my path is starting out as a kind of a hardcore developer. And then getting into a lot of the permissions and uh, RBAC, so role-based access control stuff, and other facets that had to do with a security mindset, and then uh, kind of growing out of that. Um, ended up uh, going to a company called Altel, which was bought by Verizon later on, and running a lot of their enterprise security initiatives. And that's where I got um, really hooked on the human side of things as well. Um, this is... 2004, 2005-ish, I guess, probably. Um, and the uh, the person that hired me there, a guy named Greg Schaefer, um, really, he was super focused on cybersecurity, but he had the foresight to integrate physical security with cyber. And so um, he got there and said, I really want to focus on um, everything that touches our data. And you know what? Our people touch our data. Yes, there's a safety element with that that I'll have to figure out how to deal with um, and, and work through the complexities of that. But um, people touch data and data walks out with people. And so I need to have some understanding of that. They also also thinking about the integration of access cards and everything else. Um, and so he ended up taking over the physical security side as well. And we were you know, having conversations that a lot of the world is having right now about integrating physical and cyber. We were having those back in 2004, 2005. Um, so that was a lot of fun. After Altel was bought by Verizon, I ended up going over to Gartner and doing a lot of the research stuff that you mentioned. And then uh, ultimately uh, continued studying the human side of things because what I saw over and over and over again is that regardless of how much people spend on technology-based security products, there is still this human element that can ultimately break through all of these different layers of security that people are putting their faith in that's technology-based. So I, want, I really wanted to study that and understand why and how that happens. And uh, that led into the you know, really focusing on the security awareness space hardcore for uh, well over a decade now. And then now I work for a security awareness vendor. Well, Perry, uh, I definitely want to circle back later on in this episode and give you time to talk about your position at Know Before and the work uh, this security vendor is doing in this space. Uh, but first of all, we're like-minded individuals. If you would have asked me a long before I ever embarked on my own law enforcement and security journey, I would have told you I'd be playing venues around the country in a rock band, something of which I did for most of high school and uh, decided on college instead of continuing to play in the band and deciding to, to hit that, uh, that tour cycle around the country. I distinctly remember we were opening a show one night and uh, the guitarist uh, for this headliner had come out on stage just a mess after receiving news his sister had passed while they were out on tour. Um, and I thought, Maybe I want to enjoy music in my spare time and uh, not be out on the road away from family uh, getting news like that. Uh, and I ended up uh, instead entering into a profession that took me, you guessed it, far away from family. So uh, I guess not a lot has changed, but uh, it's been a totally different career path. Uh, but like you said, the logic fixtures have a nice comparison to the chorus of sorts that is 
the security landscape. Um, and I've always been interested in the human component of security, uh, knowing that the tools alone are not going to save us. Um, and we'll deep dive a little bit into the the physical, cyber, and then human aspects of security that really touches everything. Uh, but I really uh, like that your team was having these security convergence conversations <laughs> involving all the buzzwords of today, uh, kind of on the front end yeah. uh, a decade or so ago. Um, we do have a wide listenership. Uh, some of these individuals listening today are staunch physical security professionals, while we have also some technical cyber and infosec professionals as well. Uh, but I think our podcast this year has leaned very heavy on uh, the physical aspects of executive protection, security management, uh, but even in the executive protection space. So we've seen cyber security elements kind of creep their way into the profession, uh, leading to an interesting uh, lay of the land as uh, more technology has been embedded um, by protectors and also protection companies, but also the client concerns have increasingly involved cyber awareness and security in addition to those more traditional executive protection topics. So for our, our listeners that maybe don't have uh, the deepest background with cyber, could you explain kind of the uh, a little bit uh, top level overview of, of cybersecurity and, and maybe um, the difference between cybersecurity and information security? I know the two terms get interplayed almost interchangeably, um, but there are some nuanced differences that are really important for somebody like yourself that dives way deep to the end of the pool on this. Yeah, I believe that there is a difference between information security and cybersecurity. Um, like you said, though, the vast majority of people, I think, use those terms interchangeably, and I can find myself doing that as well. So I'm, I'm not going to say that I'm above interchanging those um, because I think that's the world we live in. And you say cybersecurity, people immediately snap to that. Um, you say information security, people assume that that's cybersecurity. You say the uh, the phrase information assurance, which is more the government term that was used a while back, and people kind of cock their head a little bit. Um, but that's really what it's all about, is um, understanding how we can best protect the information that we have or the data that we have. And there's lots of um, transition points for that information. And so when you think about, you know, maybe why we might think about converging physical security and digital security, it is because information likes to move between those two barriers. They're, they're not hard silos between physical security and cybersecurity or, or data security. Um, information likes to leak. Information likes to walk around. Um, and that's when we when we think about protecting information or information security, it is really understanding all the paths that data can be lost or needs to be protected. And so let me give you an example. Um, if somebody says cybersecurity, they are usually thinking about how do I protect this information that's in a database um, or that is going over a network, something like that. Um, unfortunately, even if I have information in a database or that has gone over the network, well, when somebody prints that out, they can put that in a briefcase and walk outside of the organization. Um, if I have an information security type of mindset, then I'm asking those questions is, how does this exist outside of a network? How does this exist outside of a, a digital um, realm of keeping that or transmitting that? And um, papers, whiteboards, photographs, uh, all of that come into scope at this point. 
and you start to say, oh, you know what, that that data does like to move around. And the realms that it likes to lead, to to move around in aren't only digital. They um, it likes to bleed into the real world as well, and kind of pop out of the digital world and end up in people's hands or in their heads, coming out of their mouths, uh, and so on. Absolutely, I think that's a, a great explanation of the two and how they kind of uh, intersect, and and especially for the information security side. What do you do when a lot of these uh, digital assets are all of a sudden in a physical world? Uh, what happens when it m- makes it to the briefcase or makes it to the cabinet? Um, you really need an all-encompassing security presence to capture it all. And as an organization, if you're capturing bits and pieces, whether you have a really strong physical security apparatus, um, but you're lacking on cyber or vice versa, um, you're, you're really just getting pieces of the pie and you're leaving yourself open in today's age of kind of a 360 threat landscape that we see. And even, you know, some of those, um, if you were to look at uh, the way that tons and tons of data breaches used to happen, it was there was a well, not only that the things that we might accidentally tell somebody or write down, but there was the old backup tape that would fall off of a truck or that would get lost. And so you might say, well, that's data security, but it's also information that was taken out of its primary residence, kind of moved into the physical world um, and then lost. And so I would say that that's an interesting kind of way that that these worlds get bridged because it is still data. But that data has made itself into a physical form, uh, and that physical form has now caused a data breach just because of the fact that it is inherently mobile and losable at that point. Absolutely. And kind of the buzzword of today is the insider threat. And uh, we see that a lot with companies putting a lot of time and effort, a lot of money into these insider threat programs. And a lot of it has to do with that information security. What happens when these digital assets are now accessible, printable, Mm -hmm. and now you can tangibly have them? And how do you keep them in the space that they need to belong? And and like you said, leakage is a big thing. And how do you keep this information that's so pivotal to a company from leaking out to other actors that don't need it, don't have the right to have it? And on that note, uh, you've written two very well-received books around these topics. And uh, I mentioned them both uh, during the intro. Um, what was the drive for you to kind of transition from just the practitioner base to all of a sudden I'm going to write two books uh, at totally different time frames, um, but with similar information, right? The second one's almost an extension of the first. And, and I found them both very interesting. Um, but what was the drive to get that information out there to the public? Yeah. So the first one, um, Transformational Security Awareness uh, came out in 2019, I think, I, so that I probably started writing it at the end of 2018. And the reason that I wrote that was I was encouraged to by a colleague. Um, I had written a ton of stuff, you know, back at Gartner and research papers and um, was talking to a friend and colleague, Roger Grimes, who's written now 14 books. So, you know, somebody's going to encourage you to write a book. It's going to be somebody that's written 14. Exactly. Or they're going to say, God, you should <laughs> never do that because they understand it better. Um but I, I think I had offhand and said, yeah, I, I've had this book about security awareness kind of in my head for a while. And um, he was super, super encouraging and said, you know what, you should um, you should just put a little proposal together and go for it. And he, he told me the steps. It was about a 20 minute conversation. And I don't remember where we were at the time. Actually, I think we were like at Black Hat or something uh, that he told me that. And then uh, the next week I had a trip to London that I had to take. And so I wrote this little proposal on the plane ride, 
um, sent it off. And uh, by the time I landed, I had a, an email back from the publisher saying, yeah, I'd love to talk about this. Um, and there's a lot of reasons why a security awareness book uh, hasn't worked in the past. Uh, there's a lot of things that have to come together to, to make that subject matter um, appealing because it is so, so niche. Um, but it was a right person writing at the right time with, you know, the company that I worked for, know before backing and, and being willing to advocate for me. Um, so a lot of stuff came together uh, to make that work and to make that the one security awareness book out of the few that people have tried to write that's actually taken off. Um, doesn't mean I've done it any better. It just means all these things came together at the right time. So I mentioned that I had kind of had it in my head for a while. What I really set out to do was to write the book that I wish that I had had, you know, 10 years before that and say, if you're going to start your journey on this, here's the assumptions that you need to totally get rid of about what security awareness is and what it can do. Here's the, you know, the true bits that you need to put in your mind. And here's the action plan on what you can accomplish, how you can do it, and how to bring real science to this process. I was also really encouraged. Uh, I was able to get in touch with and work with uh, Dr. B.J. Fogg, who is really the, the preeminent uh, person uh, over the past few decades to define what behavior science can do. Uh, he specifically has a flavor of that called behavior design, and he was uh, gracious enough to allow me to use his model and uh, to go through everything that I did there and kind of approve it and give his thoughts on it. Um, so that was very unique as well. Um, and I really wanted to go through kind of the what we call the ABC. So awareness, how does that work? What is it? What can and can't it accomplish? Uh, and what are the, the limits of the communication piece that people normally associate with that? And how can I be successful as possible with that um, behavior? How do I put science behind that? How do I measure it? And so on. And then where does where do we go with culture on that? And then I wanted to bring in all the different lessons that I had learned at Gartner, working with literally thousands of CISOs around the world about how to make the executive case for this and how to deal with it programmatically and what boards of directors are looking for and all of that. So I wanted to pack that in. And then I also wanted to hear from and include the voices of lots of people around the industry, both the vendor side and the practitioner side. And uh, to get them to you know directly write answers to some questions in there, so that their voices could be part of it. And I think that that's a key piece too. Is so many people, if I were to pontificate for a few hundred pages, that's got value. But at some point, people are going to just see me as a talking head. Um, and so, getting a wide range of voices involved, I thought, was also a key to making that successful. Um, so that that was basically it. And uh, like I said, the Everything came together in just the right way, and ultimately that was recognized as being significant enough to be inducted into the Cybersecurity Canon Hall of Fame. So that was unexpected and uh, you know very good to happen for my first book. Oh, and I think it was well-deserved. Um, as somebody who kind of got sucked into a, a private sector cybersecurity startup, um, I read your book after I had since left and gone back into the government side um, and thought, man, this would have been some great information to kind of play off of as I'm talking to these CISOs. Um, but, uh, but man, if anybody has not read this book, it's worth going back, starting on Perry's first book, um, even though there's going to be a, uh, a tendency to jump straight to the second one, uh, the Security Culture Playbook. Um, and, and I want to transition to that book. Um, you know, this is your second book, um, written over the pandemic. Um, 
you know, everybody's either sitting at home or working from home. And, and it was kind of the perfect time for people to maybe find some time that they didn't, you know, usually have or possess uh, to read through a book. And, and I, I got to admit, I started cheating uh, once you had that audiobook copy. And I heard about that one. I think I stopped two or three chapters in and said, I'm going to wait to listen to this on my commute. Um, and I'm glad I did. I mean, it, it, it's a great book. It's filled with a bunch of nuggets. It's uh, probably, you know, it's on my short list of favorite reads and listens from this year. Um, but where did you get the inspiration to co-author this executive guide? You know, it's aimed at reducing risk, assisting people to further develop their own kind of defense layer uh, focused on the human side of cybersecurity. Um, and it's something that I find deeply interesting because I was one of those physical guys that got sucked into cyber that knows cyber, but spent a lot of time kind of speaking to people on both halves and kind of translating that. Um, and I think you guys do a wonderful job of addressing the human factor to cyber and information security. Yeah, there were a couple things that came together for that. Um, at the beginning, it was a book I didn't want to write, um, but enough people around me were saying, hey, you should write a book about culture because you guys are doing all this great research around that. Um, and I was like, ah, the process of writing a book is not a lot of fun. but yeah, you're right. There's a lot of cool stuff we could talk about. And um, there's a subtly different audience for that book. Um, and, and you can even, you can tell from the packaging on. So like the uh, the first book is softback. It's very easy to flip through. You can kind of mark it up like crazy and go. Um, people tend to be doing that with the second one as well. Uh, I've seen lots of people online with, you know, tabs and highlights and stuff everywhere. But it was kind of really made for a deep level practitioner that wants to know the nuts and bolts about how to get things done, to be really, really practical how to. Um, the second book, the culture book, um, it's a nice hardbound jacketed book, really geared towards the executive level um, and boards of directors. It's It's a book that um, I want somebody to buy or to have handed to them and say, this is why security culture is important. And it was it was also a, a very direct way of saying we need to uplevel the conversation from awareness to culture. So there's a, a linguistic change in that, a semantic change, and then also an audience shift. And um, there's a little bit of bleed over between the the concepts between those two books. But really, the um, the second book is like the thirty thousand foot level. Um, and so, if you're if you're a deep level practitioner, definitely start with the first book. Um, the second book is one you hand to your your uh, your executive. The other thing is, I could see that being bought by people on the executive team or by boards of directors. They read that, they buy in, or even read the first few chapters and buy in, and then they hand that down and say, "You guys need to go implement this." Um, which, of course, then and a lot of the, the detail is both in that book, but then also even more fine grained in the first book. So I could see I could see the usefulness of being able to speak up the stack with that. And then there were a whole bunch of new data models um, and research elements that we were able to talk about in that and talk about why they're relevant and to give people hope that this idea of culture, um, which is this very collective idea. It doesn't have to be amorphous. And so um, one of the other big drivers for writing, and I think the thing that clinched it to me was that um, I had been talking about, and, and others as well, I don't want to claim ownership of, of something, um, but I had been loudly talking about security culture for years. Um, in fact, even at Gartner, um, you know, 
over a decade ago, probably at this point, I had had a, uh, maybe about six or seven years ago at this point, I had had a research paper that I was working on in a presentation that I gave called Move from Security Awareness to Security Culture Management, um, which was based on work that I had done even before Gartner. So I've literally been talking about the need to move from awareness to culture for a really long time. And I could give those presentations and I could stand in front of, you know, a thousand people or so, and everybody would be nodding, saying, yeah, we need to do that. And I could I could see it over and over and over again. But we had a wake-up call when we actually did a study. Uh, we commissioned Forrester to do this for us um, at No Before. And they went out, I think they, they interviewed just over a thousand CISOs and people with executive uh, types, of, uh, types of roles. And they said, how many of you believe that security culture is important? It was an easy, you know, 94% said yes. And so uh, in today's divisive environment, if you can get 94% of people to agree on anything, you've, that's like a freaking miracle. And so they all said yes. And then the follow-up question was, how do you define security culture? And there were like 758 totally different definitions out of that thousand. Um, and if you go to break that down, there's like five different uh, groups that they typically fall in. And when you look at maybe three of those five, those first three are very traditional security awareness things. They, they thought that security culture was security awareness. Um, wrong. Um, the last two, the ones that had the smallest numbers too, also really equated to what security awareness is, which is a weaving of, you know, fabric of security mindset throughout the organization. Um, and I realized that disjoint is bad because we have 94% of people nodding their heads saying that they're good and then going away with tons of different understandings of what that is. So how do we bring everybody together, standardize on a definition, and then also say, and there's hope not only to understand what it is definitionally, but to measure it in your organization and then influence it to move in the right direction. You know, it's incredible. And I, I had in my notes here to bring up that study, and I'm glad you did. Um, when I read that, I read it, I reread it, and I was still shocked by it. Um, and it was just fascinating to think how an entire group of professionals in this space defined something totally differently. And uh, all thought they were on the same page. And it made me look back and go, how many of those meetings were, was I in or was I presenting? And just assume that everybody was on the same page because everybody's head is nodding, yet in their mind, they're thinking about something totally different than I'm you know, trying to convey through. Um, and so it was a good reset. And it was just, a, a again, a mind-blowing kind of recollection of, oh, wow, um, maybe we're not all speaking the same language when we assumed we were. Um, and, and I thought that was very interesting. And again, that's why I think this book is is so important, so powerful to speak to that and kind of do the job of getting all these individuals back on the same page, back moving in the same direction. Um, where did you guys then run with that information? Um, I know the rest of the book kind of does a good job of curtailing, okay, we have all these misdefinitions, different definitions, ideas. Um, where did you then run with that to come together with the rest of the book uh, the way that you did? Yeah. So um, after kind of defining what the problem is, then it was say, how do we how do we settle on a definition of what security culture actually is? And for that, we look at the social sciences and we came up with a definition actually that we've been using internally for a couple of years. Um, so a few years ago, we bought a company out of Norway, went founded by uh, Kai Rohr, um, and the company's name was Culture. 
um, because they had been doing such a great job of of studying culture, being able to break that down into its component parts and understand what makes it up and how to move it, um, that I really saw the value in uh, owning the IP for that and then being able to take that even further as we go forward, because this is where the industry needs to evolve, is understanding how to uh, actually influence culture in the right direction, because awareness isn't about awareness. It's about getting people to do the right thing, have the right mindset, and move in the right direction. So um, when you look at awareness, it really is a, it's a social sciences uh, type of problem that you're trying to work at. And so the definition that we use, that we propose, is that security culture is the ideas, customs, and social behaviors of a group that influence its security. And so you know, ideas, customs, social behaviors, we're getting into things like um, knowledge needing to transition into um, beliefs uh, or value systems that are then uh, influenced and reinforced by the social context that people are in. You're getting into things like peer pressure and group dynamics and all the other things that that go with that. Um, the other thing that we do is, and again, this is about making it less amorphous because even that's a fairly you know, heady type of, of concept, ideas, customs, and social behaviors. What do I do about that? Um, well, we, we break security culture down into seven different dimensions that go from you know, attitudes to cognition, the way that people think about it, to social norms, the way that they view responsibilities, to the way that they view compliance, and, and so on. Um, so we have those seven different dimensions. And then we um, propose frameworks for being able to measure those. And then once you measure those um, and you find out where you actually are, well, now you've got some baselines and you can baseline against uh, not only yourself, but other peers within your industry or groups within your organization. Um, you can understand uh, where you are, maybe where you need to go, and we can start to give you some hope. Because the other thing that we've seen is that even though you have seven dimensions, if you work on one of those dimensions, there's a little bit of a gravitational effect on the others. Um, if I'm affecting somebody's knowledge, well, that might affect the way that they view compliance. If I'm you know, affecting knowledge the right way, so you can start to affect that, might affect the way that they view their responsibilities. If I'm working on responsibilities and knowledge, it might actually affect um, their true behavior in some way. Not necessarily. There's lots of things that we know that we don't act on, um, says anybody that passed a speed limit sign. But if I'm affecting your knowledge, if I'm affecting your sense of community and responsibility, then there's a chance that I can pull that behavior along with it. You know, that's very interesting. And, and I want to tear into these concepts more. Uh, but I also want to take just a brief pause for uh, a message about this season's sponsors. Everybody hang on. We're going to come right back and we'll continue with more with Perry Carpenter in just a moment. A thank you to our 2020 sponsors. This has been an incredible year at the GSPG podcast, and it would not have been possible without the support of our dedicated listeners and our episode sponsors. Our team would like to take a moment to thank the following episode sponsors who took time to support a new podcast in 2020 and attach their names, companies, and brands to our show. These sponsors include Progressive Force Concepts, Kelly Sayer and the Diamond Arrow Group, EP Access, Storyline Resumes, Safe Schools for Alex, Tactical Fitness Austin, the Glenn Doherty Memorial Foundation, North American Rescue, Four Branches Bourbon, 
and today's guest, Perry Carpenter. We encourage our listeners to explore their offerings and content as we choose our episode sponsors by merit and not monetary donations. For those listening who may be interested in sponsoring an upcoming episode in 2023 and beyond, email us at rjacobus at gspgpodcast.com or message us directly on our GSPG Podcast LinkedIn page. We appreciate your dedication to this podcast and look forward to seeing you in 2023. Welcome back, everybody. This is, again, the Global Security and Protection Group podcast. Uh, We're here with Perry Carpenter, and uh, we were just talking about uh, security culture and diving into the different aspects of changing individual behavior and having them improve a company culture when it's based on security. And, uh, and Perry, we, you were just discussing that, um, you know, once you've identified all these different facets, and uh, like you said, you know, let's say a CEO has read your book, they've bought in, um, what's the next step for somebody who really wants to, you know, improve or change or redirect that security culture? You bring it up in the book, um, every organization has a security culture you know, whether you like it or not. And especially if you don't exactly know what that culture is, um, you definitely have one. And it's probably not as positive as you want it to be. Um, You know, one of my favorite things about your book is you have all these little quotes at the beginning of each chapter. And my favorite one is probably that chapter 10 from uh, John Childress, where you say, you get the culture, you ignore. And a lot of companies, um, they ignore this aspect of culture. And I think there's been a huge change over the last couple of years of that, uh, recollection of what's been going on around the world, what's been going on to different companies, where are these breaches really occurring, where are the weak points? And a lot of it's had to do with company culture or the human touch points of these weaknesses. Um, so how do you, as a business leader, when you realize there needs to be a change and it's been either unchecked or underdeveloped, how do you positively influence an organization's security culture? Yeah, so the first thing is really just, I mean, if you're deciding that security culture is going to be important for you, um, you have to take it out of the realm of the theoretical and start to make it something that's practical. Because we can always, we can talk about the importance of security and that's going to have some effect. We can even weave it into our corporate meetings and performance reviews. You know, you're starting to get a little bit closer there. But the only way to start to truly affect something is to know where you are in a concrete way. It's to measure it. Um, if you're talking about, you know, like the the police side of things, the only way you can prove that somebody is speeding is to use, you know, uh, some kind of radar gun or something like that. So you can understand, you can say, no, nope, here's what the thing says. Um, same thing with security culture. We need to find a way to actually measure that. Um, to measure those attitudes, behaviors, cognition, communication, compliance, norms, and responsibilities. And so um, one of the things that that we do, and again, this is proprietary stuff that no before has, but other people could approximate it too. And that's what I wanted to do with the book too, is, is say, you don't have to buy somebody's product for this. Once you understand the fundamentals, you could do some of this on your own. We just happen to have a lot of science and a lot of the pre-work done for you. Um, but you have to measure it first uh, to know where you are and to have a talking point about where you want to go. Um, so the first step is doing that. And that's a combination of things like surveys, which are, are really easy to send out. 
harder to make scientifically valid, but it is easy to start with a survey. Um, you can also do you know simple observation. Uh, you could start to look at data points from all the different integrated systems that you have to understand where compliance issues are. Um, so it's it's that data gathering piece and then understanding where you are across all those. Then it is trying to decide what your current organizational culture will tolerate as far as changing any of these different things. Because I can say um, we need to change the cognition that people have about security culture and the communication for it. Well, I can make that statement about all my employees all day long, but unless I have the executive support to do that and all of the other apparatus that can come behind that, like the uh, the ability to send out communications, the ability to uh, do measurements, the ability to look at the way that we do performance reviews, or um, the you know even as something as simple as the posters that get put up in an environment and maybe taking something down that cuts against it or changing a policy that says, um, you know, the executive should not hold the door open for 20 people as they walk in in the morning. Uh, all of that takes a lot of buy-in and it does affect um, and reflect the culture that's already there. And so first thing is to, to measure. Second thing is to make sure that you've got buy-in for any changes that you have. And then the, the third thing is to make sure that that buy-in really gets pushed down as much as possible. And that means that the executive team speaks about it openly. Um, much as I don't like the phrase, it's about not only talking the talk, but walking the walk and making sure that the executive team and anybody that is a quote unquote influencer in the organization is doing those things. And then uh, really just thinking about this the same way that you would any hearts and minds campaign. No, that's a lot of good stuff. And and especially we're talking at the end of the day, you know, it may be small changes, you know, uh, that have drastic positive effects on, on security culture. I mean, these are little things, like you said, not holding the door open for, for 20 seconds and letting everybody piggyback on through. Um, it, it's things that uh, for a lot of people, they just aren't thinking about in a security culture mindset. And it's it's really getting everybody that maybe doesn't have a background in security to really have a different mindset as they move through their day and make it about, you know, a livelihood for them. Um, and that's how you, you then steer that culture. And I, I think a lot of those little changes that, you know, maybe um, different individuals that don't normally touch what we think of as security, but all of a sudden now you're realizing, wow, there are some weak points. There are some data transfers that come through these individuals. Um, and and uh, I know, you know, know before with the phishing aspect of this, you know, just it, wait before you click. I mean, it's little things that a lot of, you know, individuals um, can really have some irreparable harm for a company without even noticing it, you know, and, and really open up these little doors and little weaknesses. Um, but again, if you have a company culture and a mindset that has people pause and think from a security lens, what would the impact be? And, and that's ultimately going to steer the culture positively, like you guys have uh, worked on so hard and you've really established in this book to give a good roadmap to do so. Um, and, and before we wrap up today, um, I really want to give an opportunity. Um, you talk about community at the end of your book, and I'm a huge proponent of organizations, networking, um, really building a group around yourself to, uh, to tackle big complex problems. Um, and, and certainly cyber and physical and the convergence of the two lends itself to some pretty cool organizations. I know you've sat on the board of InfraGuard. I 
previously sat on the board down in Austin, some great individuals in that organization, but there's other organizations. And uh, as you'll see, a lot of people kind of bleed from organization to organization. Are there some that you found really to be helpful and impactful in this space that if there's somebody listening today that says, boy, I really didn't have the background in this. I want to have the background in this. I want to add this to a repertoire. Um, Where would they go to seek out some of that uh, networking in the community that uh, is so vital? Yeah. Um, so I, I think LinkedIn is the, the best place for this right now. There's a, a really vibrant community, um, uh, with folks like myself, you have Lance Spitzner with Sands, Jessica Barker with, uh, Sygenta, um, uh, Lauren Zink, uh, who produces a lot of great stuff, um, tons and tons of people. So, and I know that since I named a few people, um, I probably have accidentally offended a few other people by forgetting to mention their name, but I could be here all day just mentioning names of people who are being, you know, very contributory in this space right now. And that's the thing is um, if if when you start to think about all the people that you could list off, you're starting to be daunted. um, That's where you want to be. If you're wanting to learn in this space, that's where you want to be. The other thing is that everybody that I know that is in the security awareness space, and hopefully we'll not call it the security awareness space at some point, we'll move on and we'll call it human risk management or um, you know, one of these other names that are being proposed, um, you know, security culture management and so on, because it is really more than awareness. But if we're talking about the community of this, um, when you look at it, everybody is out trying to help each other. Um, one of the really, really good communities that I cannot recommend enough is the SAM security awareness community. Um, they do a really, really good job. And so this is not about the, the product that they, they have. Um, outside of that, they have a certification and they also have a community and all those can stand on their own. And so the community is there. It has value. The certification that they have for security awareness is there and it has value. And then the product is there and it has its own value. Um, and uh, their community is great, super supportive, has a lot of great people in it. Um, Noble 4 it's, uh, itself, we also have a community that we're building. We're building user groups, and we have uh, Noble 4 Con and other things around um, the way that we approach that. Um, I'm certainly approachable on this also for any one-off conversations that people need to have. There's a certification um, uh, that was started by the H-Layer group, and uh, they've basically forged a lot of that certification based on work that I've done um, as the, the nucleus of that. And so that's another great way is, you know, find other people who are getting the SACP certification. And it, it just goes on and on. So I think LinkedIn is the best starting point and just say, hey, I'm new, you know, hashtag security awareness or hashtag security culture looking for a few great people and resources to connect with. And you'll have, uh, you'll have a ton of folks just trying to jump in and help. That's wonderful. And and I've, I've been pleasantly surprised over the last few years, um, you know, jumping more into the networking space, um, especially through the LinkedIn community at, you know, specifically to security, whether it's physical cyber or even security culture, um, how positive people are about the networking aspect. And and typically when you think of private sector companies that are even competing with each other, 
Um, the security space is so unique where even if you're a competitor company, odds are you got buddies at the other end and there's so much work out there to be done. Everybody's trying to up ante the level of understanding. So everybody's helping each other get become more aware, becoming you know better educated on these things. Um, and I really love that about our community. I do have one other um, community and this, is the, so they started doing uh, conferences this year and they've been really successful and encouraging too. The National Cybersecurity Alliance has been creating a, uh, a group that they call Convene. Um, and they've got a couple summits that they do every year. And it is a very core and very driven group of security awareness professionals. So yeah, people wanting to be at the bleeding edge of what security awareness is, where it should go, how to be successful um, in whatever situation they're in right now. Uh, check out the National Cybersecurity Alliance. Check out the stuff that Know Before and that I'm doing. Check out the stuff that SANS is doing, and um, you'll you'll have a great uh, starting point. There is also the International Association of Security Awareness Professionals, which is a little bit of a smaller group. Um, it does require a subscription, but they are also very very. Um, good about making sure that vendor influence is not there. Like for me, I can't participate in that. I um, mean, that's by design and it's, um, I think it's a good thing. Um, but, you know, through that subscription, you are in the room with people who are doing very, uh, very robust security awareness uh, work at their organization and you're able to network and share and and get a lot of uh, a lot of good from those conversations. Well, I appreciate you mentioning that and we will make sure to to make all that information, all those groups, the organizations available in our show notes so it's easily accessible for our listeners. Um, now, Perry, before we, we wrap up and let you go, um, I'd like to give you the opportunity to share, you know, with our audience where they can find you um, and where they can find some of the things that you are producing out there in the space. Yeah, so um, you can find me on LinkedIn is probably the easiest way. I also, um, you know, do stay on a couple other areas of social media. I'm still on Twitter, at least for now. Um, I am. Uh, I do have Instagram and Facebook accounts. I don't do a lot with those. For so for me, LinkedIn is pretty much the standard. Um, you can look at my podcast as Eighth Layer Insights. Uh, you can check out the books. I have another podcast coming called Digital Folklore, which is not. A cybersecurity podcast, but it does touch on online communities and the way that they work and influence culture around them. So it's an interesting kind of side journey. Yeah, I can speak for the, uh, the digital folklore. Um, I got a little preview into that and I can say I was hooked within the first 30 seconds and along for the ride. So I appreciate you bringing me in uh, kind of uh, as a focus group on that one. Very interesting. If anybody's into that type of stuff, uh, kind of blending the folklore with uh, the digital aspect of kind of cyber. Very interesting podcast that you're starting there. And I think people are really going to like that. Uh, Perry, thank you very much for spending your time with us today. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. So I hope that uh, something that I said was useful for a few folks out there. And if anybody wants to get in touch and have a conversation, I'm always open. Well, well thank you very much again. And for those listening, this has been another episode of the GSPG podcast. Until next time, stay safe. <laughs>